Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim, and typically I have with me Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. Uh, but this week I'm going to be sharing with you a talk that I gave at a local church here in St. Louis where I now live and study. Um, I thought it might be interesting and it fits within what we're talking about. Um, so this, this talk was actually about what it was like to go to church in North Africa. So I was. Uh, I also have another lecture that I gave, which will go up later, which is specifically on Augustine as preacher. But this first talk that I would like to share with you all was more just about um, North Africa in general, Christianity in North Africa, and what it would have been like to go to church um, around the time of St. Augustine. So if you find this interesting, please give us a comment on Facebook um, and let me know what you all think. Um, I will be, uh, you know, in St. Louis for at least another year. Um, if anybody is listening to this and would like to have me come give a similar talk, I'd be happy to do it. This was done at uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church, so I'm thankful to Chris Smith for inviting me uh, to do this over the course of a couple of weeks. Um, and, yeah, if anybody else is interested in having me talk a little bit about either early Christianity in general or specifically about St. Augustine, um, it, it's always a delight for me to be able to share what I'm studying at the university um, with, with the local churches. And vice versa, I actually learn quite a bit um, from, from people through their questions and through talking with people um, about things that I can also research and can help me shape my own writing. Um, so this week is a little bit different. It's a little bit off of the confessions, uh, but we do have several um, episodes of the confessions that will be coming up shortly. And we even have a plan to finish uh, the confessions here within the next couple of weeks. So uh, we hope by the fall to begin uh, going, maybe not forward in time, but more laterally. So looking at other people around the time of Augustine um, before uh, uh, returning to Augustine. And we would like to do the city of God, um, which, you know, we could be doing for two years. But um, regardless, we're going to do books 12 and 13 um, and just finish up the confessions uh, all in one fell swoop towards the end. Um, so those you can be looking forward to those as they come out. Uh, but please rate us, review us, find us on iTunes. Um, if you are... Uh, you know, the kind of person that likes to do this. We do have a Patreon account, and it's very helpful to me. Um, I, I foot the, uh, well, Tom, Tom Trevor and I, I should say, uh, we all foot the, the bill for this. Um, and so any uh, amount that you can donate and help offset those costs is greatly appreciated. Uh, so without further ado, this is uh, Chad Kim giving a talk at Covenant Presbyterian Church on going to church in North Africa. Um, now as I'm saying that, it also uh, there's slides that go with this. If anybody's interested in uh, those slides, I can uh, have those uh, posted somewhere. Um, thank you for listening, um, and uh, we will be back probably again even this week with another episode. Thanks. Bye. All right. So, so if I hit record, okay. All right. Well, welcome. Uh, my name is Chad Kim. Um, I, I think you can all hear me. Uh, I feel like I can hear myself a little bit. It's a little strange. I, I don't think I've ever taught with a mic before, uh, so it'll take me a minute to get used to hearing myself. Um, but yes, uh, so I grew up here in St. Louis, and I just felt like it would be 
helpful to me if I could share a little bit about who I am uh, so that way you get to know a little bit about me. Um, I always like that when I'm listening to someone so I get I could put a little backstory into who they are. And actually that's kind of what I'm going to do with Augustine. Um, so I want us to get a li- to know a little bit about the backstory of Augustine so that we can have a better appreciation for the things that he says. Um, so as I said, I'm Chad Kim. If you were here the first week, um, I'm a graduate of Twin Oaks Elementary School, uh, Westminster Middle School and High School, and I taught here at Covenant for three years. I taught Latin, so uh, I'm a product of the Westminster or of the sort of the Westminster Presbyterian uh, community here in St. Louis. So anything good that I say, it comes from that background, and anything bad I say comes from OBU, where I went to undergrad, a Baptist school. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, so so anyway, but yeah, I want you. If any of you are familiar with that education system, that's where I uh, came through, and I'm very grateful and learned quite a bit. Um, I actually studied Latin with uh, Mrs. Lewis, with Florence Lewis, uh, when I was in high school. And I don't actually remember why, but I first read the Confessions in high school. I can't remember if it was assigned in a class or if I just picked it up, uh, but I was enthralled and confused. Um, and in, <laughs> I like parts of it I got, very little bits of it, and then I just wanted to know more about who this guy was. Um, he struggled a lot with, uh, as I said, the first uh, my first week here, um, he struggled a lot with pride. Um, he was a very good student uh, and was very and excelled in all of his education, uh, but it caused him a great deal of pride. So he spent the rest of his life trying to figure out how to be humble because at some point in his life he realized that God was humble um, and that God came to teach humility. And so he said, how do I learn how to do that? How do I conform to the image of Christ who came, who is the God, the creator of all things, um, and became an unspeaking, the word became an unspeaking baby, right? Um, And and this is one of Augustine's favorite images. Uh, He loved Christmas. That was probably his favorite holiday um, because he just thought it was such a great uh, paradox. The word made flesh in an unspeaking infant. Um, And Augustine and love these kind of plays on words and these great sort of paradoxes of our existence. Um, And so I want to give you guys a little bit of a background um, into this person, St. Augustine, and we're going to do that thinking about what it was like to go to church in North Africa. So my goal today will be to sort of give you a little bit of context of what that was like. So in the 4th and 5th centuries, when Augustine lived, um, Africa, the northern part of Africa, which we're we're going to look at uh, here. Um, so we're talking about right, right up at the top here, just below Sicily. Um, this was a very Christian area in the fourth century. Um, and so we're going to talk about how that came about and what it would have been like to go to church there and then what it would have been like to hear Augustine. Um, so in two weeks, so not next week, but the week after, I will be back. And actually, this handout that you have has some uh, uh, some of the sermons of Augustine. So I gave that to you uh, to take with you in case you wanted to read and think a little bit about what it would be like to hear Augustine. Um, so those are some of his words. We may not get to much of that this week, so that might also be helpful to bring back in two weeks. Um, where I'll talk a little bit more in depth about those two sermons. But we're going to focus on Africa um, and Christianity in Africa for a few um, a few minutes. But as we get started, I thought I'd share this letter from, uh, from St. Augustine at the end of his life. Um, I believe it's from the uh, 429, so a year before he dies. He writes a letter to a guy called Darius. Now, Darius, we don't know anything about, but he wanted to read Augustine's Confessions. 
And so in ancient, uh, in ancient world, if you wanted to read a book, you had to write to the person who wrote the book and say, hey, will you have someone copy the book and send it to me? Um, and so Augustine, at, in his uh, church, had scribes. Uh, and so this guy, Darius, writes to Augustine and he says, okay, we'll send you a book, but you have to do something for me. You have to pray for me. Um, and so we're going to look at here what he says. He says, receive then, my son, receive and repeat the books of my confessions. So the confessions are his great autobiography. Um, I believe Adria talked a little bit about that. Uh, which you desire, my Lord, who are good and Christian, not superficially, but with Christian love. In them, contemplate me so that you do not praise me beyond what I am. In them, uh, well, so part, I'll stop there. So beyond that, what I am. So Augustine, the confessions tell a lot of sort of um, unsavory elements of Augustine's life. He lived with two different women who weren't his wife. Uh, he uh, would go to these shows. He would, um, you know, he was embarrassed by how arrogant he was, how proud he was, how he treated people. Um, and so Augustine tells through nine books of the confessions a lot of things that are not praiseworthy. Um, that are, in fact, sinful, uh, right? That's part of the point of the confessions. They detail Augustine's great sins. Um, and so he says, so I don't want you to praise beyond what I am. Um, in them, believe not others about me, but me, myself. So he's going to tell in his confessions all of his sins. Um, in them, pay attention to me and see through me what I was in myself. Uh, and then he's going to go on. And if anything in me pleases you, Praise there along with me, not me, but him who I have wanted to be praised because of me. For he made us and not we ourselves, Psalm 100 tells us. We destroyed ourselves, but he who made us remade us. But when you find me in them, pray for me so that I may not fail, but may be made perfect. Pray, my son, pray. So Augustine's great goal in all of his teaching, all of his writing, in his whole life was that God might be praised, right? So as we go through, as I teach about Augustine, as we go through his life and his preaching in church in North Africa, ultimately it should end in doxology, right? It should end in praise to God. That's what Augustine would want. So anything that we see uh, that is good from the life of Augustine, I mean, anything that we learn from him, ultimately Augustine would say, hey, let's make sure we're redirecting it up, right? Make sure we're redirecting it uh, to God. Because it's not about Augustine, it's about God. At one point in one of Augustine's sermons, he says, if I say anything that is true, it is God speaking through me. It's not me, right? And so that was Augustine's refrain. So this really arrogant man, right? This guy who was uh, one of the most learned men in antiquity, who had one of the most prestigious uh, professorial chairs in the ancient world. It was like he was the head of Harvard or something in our day, right? A dean of Harvard. Um, this very arrogant man ultimately gives all that up and says, for the rest of my life, um, I'm going to go to a little small town in North Africa and preach to a little community of farmers and fishermen. Um, and, and he says, I'm going to do that because this is what I believe God is calling me to do. And if I say anything that is true, I want it to go to his praise. Right? So this is Augustine's heart. So I want you guys to think about that um, as, we, um, as we go through his, his life and writings. So, the little small town where he preaches. As I said, um, he is... Does this thing have a pointer? Ah, here we go. 
So actually, uh, this is where Hippo is. So it's in between two or three smaller uh, cities. So this, uh, this is the Roman Empire in 117. Um, so this would be a little bit before Augustine's time, but you can see they don't even mark Hippo Regius, where Augustine was bishop. Um, and I should also say, we're going to try to reconstruct the background, what it was like to go to church in Augustine's North Africa. Um, but to do it, we have to collect from a lot of different sources. So things that we know from the letters of Augustine, things that we know from archaeology, things that we know from, uh, from other writings from the time. Yes, is, are there any are there any churches, cathedrals, etc. that are still existent in North Africa from that from that era? Yes, great question. There are. Yeah, there are there are actually quite a few. Um, so uh, the last uh, so I've been doing some research on this recently. Um, it seems that it's been about thirty years. Um, since anyone has been allowed to do a lot of uh, archaeology in what is modern-day Tunisia, where a lot of this is. So it, Tunisia and Algeria kind of like split right about here. Um, and so in modern-day Tunisia, there are some uh, uh, remains, which I'll show you momentarily. Um, but uh, there, ha there have been a lot of recent um, searches or uh, excavations, in part, I think, because of a lot of turmoil in North Africa, right? So you have Arab Spring and some of these other things. Um, and any archaeology that we have from the area is done through the French. Um, so it's all French Catholics who seem to do it. So um, I've been trying to brush up on this a little bit um, because uh, it, it actually, uh, I'll, I'm going to show some stuff, but they've reconstructed what Augustine might have preached in um, and some of these sort of things. So it'll be helpful to get an image of what it looks like. But that's a great question. Is that helpful? Yeah. Um, so... Actually, at the time that this map is supposed to represent 117 AD, this is helpful, there were probably no Christians in Africa at this point. Um, so Christian, Christianity doesn't come to Africa till the middle of the 2nd century um, AD, or CE, as sometimes we use in academic circles, but uh, in, Rome, in the year of our Lord. So about 100 years after Christ, uh, Christianity comes, from, comes to Africa. We don't know who, and we don't know why. Um, there's a guy called Tertullian. Um, and Tertullian is, well, I'll call him a church father, but he, uh, he was also kind of a heretic. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's some dispute about this. His early writings are accepted as orthodox. His later writings are called Montanists, which is another heresy um, that was later rejected uh, by the, the um, great church. Uh, but Tertullian just starts writing, and we don't know why or how this guy came to know exactly. And at about the same time that Tertullian's writing, there's great persecutions going on in Africa. So, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, so here I've got some stuff on North African Christianity. Um, so the, the two things that characterize Christianity in North Africa are its, um, its unique language. So most of the people there probably spoke Punic. Um, and uh, it was one of the places of the most intense persecutions in the empire. So a lot of the records that we have of um, Christians being persecuted come from North Africa. In fact, the first writing, so uh, Perpetua and Felicitas, the first female Christian authors that we have are martyrs from North Africa. Um, and, and so uh, they're about the same time as Tertullian, although he doesn't reference them. Um, but uh, Tertullian is, the, uh, is known as the first person to use the term Trinity. Um, so uh, I've, I've sort of said that we can tell the history of Christian theology entirely from North African authors. Um, I'm not going to do that for you here. 
Uh, but we could, right? So Christianity is as integral to uh, late ancient Africa as any other religion, right? So, and, and anything that we know, uh, or anything that we say about God and Trinity and these sorts of things, most of it comes from North African thinkers, be it Tertullian, be it um, Athanasius of Alexandria, um, be it St. Augustine of Hippo. All of, not all, but a lot of our early theology comes from North Africa, interestingly. Um, so it's not just a white Western European religion. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I mentioned uh, Tertullian. Cyprian is another great um, bishop of North Africa. Um, Cyprian was persecuted as well. Um, and, and so part of his writings are about that, how he handles that as a leader of the church. Um, so these are kind of Augustine's um, legacy, or not, not legacy, um, predecessors. Um, and so Augustine will reference them and say, you know, these are the other great North African uh, preachers and bishops. Um, but as I say, many martyrdom accounts come from North Africa. And, and just a moment about the language. Um, so in North Africa, uh, you were likely to hear one of four or five languages. Um, so the services, as we will get to, were all conducted in Latin. Um, but the guy who was preacher at Hippo before Augustine was Greek, Valerius. So Valerius speaks Greek, doesn't speak Latin very well. His congregation is full of a bunch of rural North Africans who probably spoke um, either what is called Punic, uh, which is a language, interestingly, that is descended from Phoenician. So the great enemies of Israel um, left uh, that part of the world and came to North Africa um, and inhabited that area. Um, so let's see, I'll go back to my big map here. Um, so, so the culture of North Africa, a lot of it actually starts over here. Um, and so, but, uh, but anyway, so in North Africa, a lot of people would speak Punic, or there's a language um, that we don't know much about, which is either called Libyan or Berber, which is probably what Augustine's mother spoke. Uh, so Augustine's mother uh, is a very native North African. Um, her name, Monica, comes from the name Mon, which we think is a god, a goddess, um, in the sort of Berber tribe. Um, so that's his mother. His father, Patricius, is a very low-level magistrate, um, so he has some very small amount of influence. Um, actually, Augustine's family is probably as close as there was to middle class. Um, so they don't have a lot of money, um, they don't have a lot of prestige, but they have a little bit, enough to get Augustine started with education, uh, but then he finds a patron, he finds someone who gives him money um, to go to school. And actually there's a period of confessions where he doesn't go to school because uh, he's out of money. Um, his father dies, his mother's not sure what to do, um, and, and so he can't finish his education. That's actually been about the same time that he steals the papers. Um, so he's, he's on hiatus from school because his parents run out of money to send him to private school. Um, but, uh, but he ultimately is able to go back, um, and, and it's a, private school is not really a close um, comparison because there was only one kind of education. Um, but, uh, but you had to pay for it. Um, yeah, so there wasn't really state-level education in, in the way that we talk about it now. But anyway, I, I don't have nearly enough time to do that. Uh, right, so North African Christianity... Um, right, so Augustine, uh, when Augustine is ordained, uh, Valerius, the previous uh, um, occupant of the chair, um, uh, the previous person who preached in, in uh, Hippo, says, we need someone who can connect with the people. 
Um, your mom's Berber. You speak Latin. Probably speak Berber. Um, and uh, I just speak Greek, and I don't speak Latin very well, and I know nothing about these Modacan people. So why don't you do it? Um, and, and I'm going to read an account of Augustine uh, about his ordination, but Augustine does not want to do this. Um, Augustine is absolutely opposed uh, to becoming a pastor at first. Um, and we'll talk about why as we go along. Um, but that is, uh, that, that's kind of how he gets his start. Um, oh, and I should say quickly, in case you're wondering, um, Augustine, as far as we know, never writes in Punic or Libyan. Uh, so he shows that he knows the languages. He will reference North African languages in his writings, but he never writes entirely, uh, at least that we have recorded in these other languages. So he writes almost exclusively, in, or pretty much exclusively in Latin, with the occasional reference to Greek or Punic and Libyan. Um, it's a great debate among scholars how much Greek did he know, because he says he hates learning Greek as a kid. And if anyone has ever tried to learn Greek, they love Augustine's account of learning Greek, because it's really hard and it's really annoying. And he also got beat by his professors when he didn't get it right. So you can just add a whole other level to that. If any of you in the seminary and didn't like your Greek, just imagine walking out of class and your professor just start beating you uh, for not getting a good grade on the test. That was what Augustine endured. Uh, so he did not like Greek as a child. Um, <laughs> all right, so um, in uh, 425, so towards the end of Augustine's life, he gives a sermon, um, and he talks about what it was like to become a pastor. So how does he get started in his pastorate? Well, this is what he says. Uh, I, whom by God's grace you see before me as your bishop, came to the city, that is Hippo Regius, as a young man, many of you know that, I was looking for a place to establish a monastery, right? So his goal at this point in his life is to be a monk. He wants to pray, um, and he wants to hang out with his friends um, and talk about theology. Um, and, I mean, it sounds pretty good, right? Um, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, God has different plans for him. Uh, so he says, that's what I wanted to do, and live there with my brothers. I had, in fact, left behind all worldly hopes. So he left behind his position as imperial rhetor. Um, he left all prestige and honor. Um, and he just wants to sit around and read and write and think. Um, I mean, that is the good life. Right? <laughs> uh, so much, though, that I dread the episcopate, that is, to be a bishop, um, that since I had already begun to acquire a reputation of some weight among the servants of God, I wouldn't go near a place where I knew there was no, bi no bishop. Um, I avoided this job, and I did everything I could to assure my salvation in a lowly position and not to incur the brave risks of a high one. But as I said, a servant ought not to oppose his Lord. I came to this city to see a friend whom I thought I could gain for God to join us in the monastery. It seemed safe enough because the place had a bishop. I was caught. Um, I was made a priest, and by this grade, I eventually came to the Episcopate. Right? So he, like he said, in one way to translate that uh, is he was snatched. Uh, so Posidius. So there's another biography of Augustine. Um, so Posidius is one of his students, and he writes about Augustine's life after his death, and he says Augustine actually weeps openly. Um, when uh, all the, the people of Hippo Regius and Valerius say, why don't you become our uh, priest? And Augustine weeps. And they all think that he's mad uh, because it's such a small, insignificant post. They think he wants to be Bishop of Carthage uh, or the Primate of all of North Africa. They think, look at this great man. Surely he wants the most important position in North Africa. But Augustine weeps because he says, I don't want to be a priest. 
I just want to read and hang out with my friends. Uh, and, 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 they, and he says, but instead, God had a different plan for me. So he takes this really small, insignificant little pastorate, and that's where he stays for the rest of his life. Uh, his friend, Olympias, is a bishop before him uh, in Thagast, in the town that uh, he grew up in. His friend, uh, Aurelius, is the bishop of Carthage. He's friends with the primate. All of his friends growing up, all of his brothers in the faith, um, who none of you, well, at least I had never heard of any of these people and, uh, until I started studying Augustine. The names are so insignificant. They had all the high positions. Um, these are these guys who, um, you know, had the place where they thought um, was, was the most prestigious place to be in the church. Um, and Augustine ends up in this little dainty town called Hippo Regius. Um, so this is where he spends his life, right? So he leaves Milan, that's where he is at the height of his career, and he comes to rural North Africa. Um, Milan at the time was probably kind of the center of empire uh, because the Vandals had already started sacking Rome, and there's, you know, a lot of that. Um, all right. Uh, we're not going to go through all this. This is more from that sermon uh, uh, on his episcopate. Um, but he talks a little bit about what it was like. Um, it, he was actually of ill health for a lot of his uh, later life. Um, but, but he lives, he does actually get to do some of what he wants to be a monk. So it appears that he actually lived in his basilica uh, with some of his, actually he lived as the head of a monastery. And his sister was the head of the convent. Um, so Augustine has a sister and a brother who we don't hear very much about, but both of them uh, probably lived with Augustine at the church, basically, in kind of a monastery. Uh, there were women in one side, men on the other, um, and his sister was the head of the convent, actually. Uh, or at least so we think. So that's actually um, from some archaeological evidence uh, from, from Hippo. Uh, but here, uh, these are the remains. So as, uh, as our... Uh, someone asked earlier. Uh, so his basilica is called the Basilica Pacis, uh, which is the Basilica of Peace. Um, and so this guy, I don't know who that is. I found this on the internet. Uh, <laughs> this guy is sitting on what we think is Augustine's cathedra. So that's the Latin word for where we get cathedral, um, but the chair. So when Augustine would preach, he sit. And everybody else would stand. Um, and we think that Augustine would actually preach from anywhere from 10 minutes to three or three and a half hours. Um, and everybody else, the Basilica Pacis, so this, this what you're looking at, um, is just, um, sometimes it's called the Presbyterium. Uh, it's where all the presbyters, all the priests would sit. Um, and so that's all you're seeing, is where all the priests might sit. Um, so, uh, actually, Hippo, it's a really small, dinky town. It has two, maybe three churches. One of them was much bigger. It was a Donatist stronghold, which is a whole other heresy. But they're sort of uh, pseudo-Christians. Uh, I, I don't know how to put it politely. But, they, I mean, they're declared heretics. So, but, um, but, yeah, so there, there are some people that Augustine fights with um, about what is the true faith. Um, uh, so Hippo has at least two churches. One of them was a, like Catholic um, um, Christianity, um, and one of them was Donatist Christianity. Um, and so uh, this is actually just uh, just where Augustine would sit, and then down here is where the people would start to stand. They think that Basilica Pacis could actually hold at most two thousand people. Um, regularly, it would only be a couple hundred. Um, but actually, Christianity in North Africa was a little bit like um, Christianity in the United States. People came for the major holidays and didn't any other time. 
Um, so they would be packed to the gills uh, for uh, Christmas and for Easter, but on a regular Sunday, it would probably be much fewer than that. Uh, but there's, that's where Augustine would have sat. This gives you a kind of a long-scale view of um, the whole uh, area. So I think where this dude is sitting is in the back there. Um, but, uh, but that is the, well, no, you should be able to see. So it must be right here. You should be able to see. That is, um, so there's actually a cathedral that was built in honor of Augustine that still stands. Um, and that's what that is. Uh, but it has nothing to do with the historical Augustine. It was made much later. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's the outline of what the church would look like. This is a, um, a French artist's rendering of the inside. Uh, so it would be a combination of stone and wood. Uh, there would be nothing on the walls. So if you were to walk into Augustine's church, to uh, the Church of Peace, as it was known, um, you would walk in. Uh, this side would be where the women would be sitting, probably veiled. Um, and this side would be where the men would sit. Uh, and, or stand, excuse me. Uh, and the walls would be totally bare. Uh, the only thing, the only ornamentation that you would see in Augustine's church would be uh, the chalice that would hold the wine um, and the plate that would hold the bread, and possibly uh, some hanging. Like they might have like one thing hanging, uh, kind of like from here, uh, that would have like some words sewn on it, like a tapestry. Uh, but you might have one or two tapestries. Uh, but but that would be it. It would be totally bare, totally plain. Men and women separate, women covered, um, and um, we're, we're going to talk about the order of service in a minute. But just to give you a sense of the setting, uh, that is uh, what what you would see. Um, we don't know exactly how long the services would take. Depends on how long uh, Augustine preaches, um, but uh, but at least a couple hours. Um, and it would be it, so. We think that in terms of temperature, when you'd walk in, there would be no fans, right? Um, and it's but it's a Mediterranean climate, so the winter is supposed to be really nice. Like if you've been to uh, the French Riviera or something, I don't know. If you've been on the Mediterranean, it's nice on the water. It can get really hot in the summer, um, but it's still it's a, a, a harbor town, um, so it'd be cool enough. There'd be sea breezes. So actually, it would be terribly hot. Um, and actually much greener than you'd expect, right? If you think North Africa, you might imagine more deserts, but it's actually fairly lush and good farm country. Um, and that was what most of the people who went to Augustine's church were farmers, fishermen, um, and then scattered nobles. Um, but, uh, but that's what it would look like. This is one. So this is a, a drawing of a different church, but it gives you a sense. That's like where he would sit. People would stand. Um, there would be a separate place to be baptized, right? So in Augustine's, uh, um, Augustine was one of the first church fathers to speak very um, sort of in defense of um, baptizing children, right? So he felt like this was very important. Um, and so uh, it's, this is actually, Augustine's life is a period of transition in the ancient world. Uh, so the fourth century, the time when Augustine uh, becomes a, a Christian and then a priest, um, over the course of that 100 years, you go from one of the worst persecutions of, of Christians in the early 300s um, to Christianity. So Christianity was outlawed and fought. You would be killed if you were a Christian. In North Africa, they would ask to come see your Bibles, uh, and they would burn them. 
Um, and so this was part of the legacy of Christianity in Africa. Not only did they not want you to gather at churches where they would kill you, uh, they would take your Bibles and burn them. It's actually, there's an interesting little tidbit that there's not been a, a much research done. But it seems that a lot of the Gnostic Gospels, as we call them, is what the Christians would give rather than the Bibles. Um, so actually, one of the reasons we don't have as many of the so-called Gnostic Gospels is the Christians are like, hey, burn these. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, especially in North Africa, they were very, like, very happy. They're like, "Yeah, we, we'd be happy for you to burn this." Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah. So, so in Augustine's life, that is the early part. Um, well, that's just before he's born. But, but that's the, the that's the world his mother is fathered in. Um, intense persecution of Christians, uh, and then Constantine makes it legal. So it's legal to be Christian. Uh, and, and then we have the Council of Nicaea, the first definition of orthodoxy. By the end of the 4th century, um, and in the early 5th century, uh, Christianity uh, becomes the only legal religion of empire. So over the course of one century, um, and the life of Augustine's family, Christianity is heavily persecuted, um, and then, in some cases, they become the persecutors. Uh, not, not in the same way, uh, but, but they become the only ones, uh, they're the only legal religion. Um, and, and that is, you know, we can talk about why that is, what that is, um, and what the ramifications are. But it just gives you a sense of the change um, in Christianity in Africa. Um, the only ornamentation that you might notice are mosaics on the floor. Um, there being lots of drawings of fish um, and peacocks. Um, and I don't know, I can't remember the significance of the peacock. The fish is ichthus um, as a standard Christian symbol. And there would be crosses um, by this point, um, in, in, like on uh, sarcophagi and other things. Uh, but crosses don't become a symbol of Christianity until later um, because they're still a symbol of, of persecution and death. Um, and, and not a symbol of Christ and resurrection until, until a little bit later. But about this time. Um, so that's sort of something that you would see on the floors. Um, all right. Before I turn to an order of service, I'm going to see if there are any questions or anything that I can answer before we move on to the next bit here. Uh, yes, ma'am. So um, he was the bishop. Does that mean he, like, today, that he was over priests who had um, churches? That's right. So, well, so it seems that it's not as high of a position as bishops are today. So there might have been as many as 400 bishops um, in North Africa. Um, so it might be more like a head pastor um, because um, there would be sort of deacons and um, other kind of lectors they call them or readers um, who would be in his church helping him. But he's basically over his church. Um, it's not the same kind of... Um, it doesn't seem to have the same status as like uh, as bishops are usually thought of today. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Yep. He was educated in Milan, you said. Right. Good question. Sorry. So um, he was educated uh, almost entirely in North Africa. He goes to Milan to teach. Um, so he was his sort of um, graduate education, if you want to call it, was in Carthage. Uh, uh, so there are some other famous. Uh, uh, Latin speakers and sort of well-educated people. Carthage seems to be one of the best places to get an education um, in the ancient world, actually. Um, and that's what he was educated. Yeah, so, so, go ahead. So, so, so Jeff, just to, just to put the history in context here, mm -hmm. we, 
this point, we have the Council of Nicaea. Yep. Nicene Creed is there, so there's a, and, and we have a, a the, the um, uh, we're just escaping. Yeah. The, the, the scripture is defined. The, you know, the Orthodox scripture is defined. Yeah, so um, Athanasius' Feastal Letter. Yeah, so, I mean, um, I mean, the history of the canon is a, a great topic, um, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, so Athanasius' Feastal Letter is one place that people look for a list of 27 books of the New Testament. That's 367. Um, so that's just after, Augustine was 12 year old um, when, when Athanasius writes this letter. Um, but there's, contrary to popular belief, there was never actually a council that defines uh, the canon. Um, it's actually just an organic development that starts, we think, maybe as early as the end of the first century. Um, and so the, cana the canonization process is actually a several centuries process um, that was definitely solidified by Augustine's life. Uh, and by solidified, I mean there was basic agreement among all churches from as far east um, as Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and as far west as Spain. Um, so the ancient world as we know it by the late 4th century had basically accepted across Christendom the 27 books that we know as the New Testament. Um, this is something that I, I teach at SLU, and all my undergrads, uh, if they know anything about this, they, they, they read Dan Brown, who says that Constantine decided to creed in the Council of Nicaea, and it's like, one of my big frustrations. <laughs> um, I know that's not what you were saying at all, but it's just like, yeah, I always have to have like a class where I just discuss this. I'm like, okay, Dan Brown, not good history. Um, <laughs> Uh, and it's sort of weird. I thought that had well passed, but somehow 18-year-olds still know, if they know anything, they, they know things from Dan Brown. Or maybe they don't even know that it's from Dan Brown. They're like, you know, yeah. Uh, but yes, it's a great question. So, so by the time Augustine is a, is a bishop, is a priest, uh, yeah, Nicaea. Um, Chalcedon hasn't happened yet, um, so that's 451, um, and that's kind of where the church defines what sometimes called the hypostatic union, um, so exactly how the two natures of Christ are united. Uh, that has not happened, that's a mid-fifth century. It's not a council, or it is a council, but it's not a, a creed, um, the acts of Chalcedon is usually called, but, but good question. Uh, but most of the major markers that we find in sort of historic Orthodox Christianity are in place by the end of the fourth century. Yeah. All right. We do it all right. We take deep breath. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, you know, I guess what they say uh, when when I was starting graduate school, they said it was like um, um, drinking water from a hose. Um, I'm sorry. I get really, this is like you don't understand how excited this makes me. That I get. <laughs> And so for me, I'm just like, don't you want to just love us? <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm getting, I'm getting too familiar with you all. I'm breaking. <laughs> uh, all right, <laughs> now back to the uh, boring stuff. Um, <laughs> I, did, I did have a professor in college who would throw chalk at people who fell asleep. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, we're still going. Um, here we go. So the order of service. Here, this will wake you up. Um, so we think this, uh, one of the interesting things about uh, going to church in North Africa, before Augustine had been to Milan and learned from Ambrose, there was no music 
we don't we we don't think in uh, in churches. Uh, so uh, Ambrose is kind of the first person to bring music to the western part of the empire. Um, and so Augustine Augustine loves the music of Ambrose, um, but he's also it also kind of makes him afraid because he says he's so taken up with the beauty in it he kind of loses his mind. Um, so we'll see how you feel. Uh, this is one uh, historian and artist's uh, rendition of what one of the songs of Ambrose would have sounded like. And Augustine brings it back to North Africa. Uh, but, that, you know, we don't know. Um, it's hard to say exactly what music would have sounded like. But we know that uh, Ambrose learned it in the East. So he learned it uh, in, in the basilicas and the cathedrals of the Greek East and brings it to the Latin West. So this is actually sung in Latin, uh, but uh, and, but it's kind of a um, it's reminiscent of Gregorian chant, but. Um, and also, it appears that the Donatists were singing. 
Um, and so the sort of rival church uh, down the street, hey, look, they got beautiful music. What have we got up, Augustine? And he says, well, I did learn from this guy, Ambrose, who does some songs. Uh, but we think that their music was, was quite a bit different. Uh, but uh, I believe that Atria had a scene, Deus Creator Omnium, uh, God the Creator of all things, right? Um, so we still sing some of this uh, tradition. Um, and it, it was largely used by Augustine as a kind of uh, apologia against uh, the Donatists. Um, and we think when you would go into the church, part of the reason that he preached for three hours on one occasion, um, I'll go to the slide in a minute, uh, part of the reason he would preach so long is because the church would be on a street, and there'd be the Donatists here, and there might be a theater here. Uh, or at least a place where pagans would gather. Maybe they would go down the street during one of their festivals. And so Augustine was worried that his people would go out and, and sort of uh, imbibe uh, in the pagan festival. So, so he would just preach for as long as possible, as long as he could hear uh, the parade going down the street. Um, so, yeah, uh, so, so, and, and it's, pretty, it's pretty funny. He says at the end of that sermon, he says, I know that you're tired, but I also know what's going on outside. Um, and, and so he, we think that he actually just kept talking uh, to keep them from going out. Um, and there's a great history to that whole uh, sermon. But uh, so anyway, Augustine, he was long-winded. Um, all right, so this, we think, is something like an order of service. Um, so back to our theme. Oh, we got five minutes. Good. Okay. But <laughs> I'm pretty much right where I wanted to be. That's it. Um, like I said, I get excited. Um, so the hymns, all in Latin, new edition in the West. Um, they would read from the Old and New Testament. There'd be a lector. Um, so one of the people from the monastery uh, would, would read the Old and New Testament, um, a selection. So we have a lectionary. Augustine had a kind of lectionary. Um, sometimes he would follow the lectionary, and then sometimes he would do a series on the Gospel of John, uh, which becomes a book. The tractates on the Gospel of John. So he was both a lectionary preacher and a serious preacher, uh, if you like. Um, and uh, they, they would chant the psalm. So uh, you would actually sing, maybe men and women uh, would sing back and forth to each other the psalms. So the people in uh, Hippo Regius were probably 85%, give or take, illiterate. Uh, but they would come to church and they would know the psalms by heart because they heard them so often. Um, and so they, when they would go through the psalms, the readings from the psalms would be very long. Uh, but that was the only way that an illiterate populace could learn the psalms. Um, and the psalms, uh, Augustine says, the psalms are the church's prayer book. So if you're going to learn how to pray, you need to know the psalms. So how are you going to know the psalms if you can't read? Uh, well, you hear them in the church. Um, and so Augustine actually, at points when he's preaching, he'll quote a psalm. And he'll say, I know, I can hear you repeating it. Um, I, can, I know that you know this song. So like, he would say, uh, uh, great are you, Lord, and worthy to, and then the people would say, worthy to be praised. Uh, and he would say, that they would hear him. Uh, or he would hear them, and he would say, I know that you know this song. Um, and so we get this indication that his preaching was, very, was a little bit more back and forth. Um, and at least uh, people felt very comfortable calling out to him. Um, at, one case, at one point, there was apparently some women who were very tired and they started to sit down. Um, and, and he says, I can see that you guys are very tired and he, he closes the sermon. Uh, but, but, or other, kind, other times, he seems to take questions. Um, someone says, you keep talking about a word, what do you mean? And then Augustine says, I mean the word made flesh. 
this sense that he might have actually responded uh, to people in his congregation. Um, but uh, so th- this is their order of service. They read the Psalms, uh, and then on the martyr's holiday, the Acts of the Martyr would be read. So as I said, this is maybe particular even to North Africa, how central the stories of the martyrs were. Someone would stand up and say, this is what it was like when Stephen was killed, or this is what it was like when Perpetua and Felicitas were killed for their faith. And Augustine would let them go on as long as they wanted to, to, to read and tell these stories. And sometimes his, his shortest sermons, he would just stand up and say, we should be like the martyrs. We should be willing to die for our faith. Um, and then he'd be done. And he'd just let the story of the martyr speak for itself. Um, so uh, then if he, if he didn't do that and he preached for three hours because of the raucous uh, pagan festival, um, he would go for as long as he felt comfortable. Um, and then, so this is an interesting part of the ancient church. There's what they called the catechumenists. So if you wanted, I, I got a minute. Uh, if you wanted to become a Christian, um, you would have to study for a while. You'd have to fast uh, before Easter. Um, and uh, Augustine would teach them on a separate occasion sometimes. They would have like, you know, I don't know, like Wednesday night at church. They'd all come here, Augustine, and he'd teach them about the faith. And they would wait um, and prepare themselves to become a Christian. Uh, but after his sermon, they would receive salt um, which was supposed to preserve them um, until their baptism, and a little bit of bread of exorcism to clean them out from any uh, evil spirits. And they'd take that, and they would go. Uh, and then they would bless the sacraments, pass the peace, because the peace was only for fellow Christians. Um, and, uh, and then they would receive the sacraments themselves. Um, so this seems to be the order of service in North Africa. Uh, so some things that are probably reminiscent to your services and our services... Um, but but then you know these other strange uh, customs that uh, that you know don't really as far as I know I went to an Orthodox church where they gave us bread at the end for those of us who aren't Orthodox uh, but it didn't have salt in it but yeah, it was a friendly bread yeah did everybody know Latin or did or was also I guess converts was the language spoken in the church other than the hymns something everyone could understand. Yeah, so it was all Latin. Um, and Augustine, when he's preaching, part of his humility and part of the thing that I look at in my research, actually, is Augustine will say things like, let the, grammar, let the grammarians and the teachers yell at me. Um, I'm going to speak the language that the people understand. Um, and so he would... So, I mean, I'm trying to think about, you know, we don't have such an emphasis on language as he did, but if you can imagine such a different register of speech, um, that, that was what Augustine was used to speaking, uh, but most of his people spoke a barbaric, or what would be considered a barbaric, um, pidgin Latin, and at times Augustine would use the pidgin Latin uh, to explain things uh, to people who didn't understand it. Uh, so, so if you, you know, like... Well, I can give an example, but it doesn't really matter. If you learn Greek, you know there are different endings in the words, and it seems that the people would not get the endings right. And so he would use the wrong endings on purpose, um, because that would be the endings that the people would know. Um, so yeah, so Augustine tried as hard as he could um, to make himself understood, um, and at times calling on words that were uh, Punic as well, actually. Uh, and so he'd say, in Punic, this is X or Y. Uh, but, but he doesn't ever... At least as we have recorded, he doesn't record a sermon in here. 
All right. Well, uh, I don't know if that entices you or makes you want to run away, uh, but I will be back in two weeks. Um, so we'll see who's, uh, who's got the stamina to put up with me for another week. If you have any other questions, I'd be ha- I have uh, the, this sheet has some sermons. We're going to look at some of the things that Augustine says, how he says them. Uh, and, but if you have any other questions that I can answer, I mean, maybe from the whole class, I'd be happy to take them. Uh, if I can do them justice, or at least uh, we can talk to Atria and Matt. But, but I appreciate all their hard work in this, and Chris as well. So thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I hope that was helpful. Thank you for listening to A History of Christian Theology. Please uh, like us on Facebook, rate us, and review us if you would so that others can find this podcast. Have a good week.